0: Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. We have a travel celebrity on the show with me today. I'm very, very excited about this interview. She is Darlene Newman. You know her from her wonderful PBS series, Travels with Darley. Hey, Darlie, it's so nice to speak with you again. Hey,
1: Pauline, from one travel celebrity to another.
0: <laughs> oh, please, you're too kind. We both were at the uh, International Travel Show, and I had the pleasure of sitting in on Darlie's fascinating speech, which delved pretty deeply into the American Revolution. In fact, you you did a trivia question that stumped me. Was it where were the most battles in the American Revolution, or or what? What was your question? Do you remember? Yeah, it's um
1: well during this during six years of conflict, General George Washington and the Continental Army spent more days in this state than any other state, and it's yes. interesting. You know, and I don't know. People did get it, but a lot of people. Don't know as much about traveling in New Jersey. And I've been really diving into the state to cover sites related to the American Revolution because a lot happened there. So that's definitely a a big part of of the story and the history.
0: So, what do people see if they want to trace this history in New Jersey?
1: I've been spending a lot of time in places like Morristown, Trenton. There's the old barracks in Trenton where they did a lot of actually vaccinations for smallpox during the American Revolution, which is lesser known. And Princeton, there was a battle at Princeton University. Princeton was briefly a uh, capital, uh, and and also, you, if you're if you're at Princeton and Nassau Hall, they say you can still find a spot where a cannon actually went through Nassau Hall. If you look at the at one portion of the building, and we went over and tried to find it, and I did see a little area where I thought I saw that it might have gone through. There's priceless artworks there related to the American Revolution as well. And just just really fascinating history. The Battle of Princeton was fought in that area, and uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, and I mean everywhere you go, New Jersey. George Washington slept there. He drank there. (laughs) 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 Right, right. Jack, which is I went to Laird and Company, which is a family-owned business that's been making applejack since the days of the American Revolution and they say they had a hand in in helping people during that time period through their wonderful applejack.
0: So, there's well, a lot back
1: of- in those days before we
0: go far further. You have to remember it was dangerous to drink plain water in many places. If you didn't have a spring, the water could be contaminated. And so people drank hard alcohol often from morning till night because that
1: was better for your health yeah I mean it's funny and it's really interesting and I loved actually in your talk hearing about some of the history related to travel and and just history in general, which, relates to our lives today. And that's something that I think is fascinating about traveling to these historic sites. A lot of people will say, oh, how is it relevant to me now? But when you go to these places and you meet people, a lot of the reenactors are so passionate about Mm -hmm. what they're doing and the stories that they're sharing. And they'll give you a reason to take notice of the history. You know, The smallest thing from when I was at the, the old barracks in Trenton, one of the women who is a historian and who makes her own clothing and dresses up said, once you get out there and you try to make a fire, you know, not using modern materials, you realize how Uh. the challenges that people faced. And I've been trying a lot of historic foods from colonial times as I've traveled. I was at the Frog and the Peach in New Brunswick in New Jersey recently. And the chef there who's CIA trained was making George Washington hoe cakes off a recipe from that time period. And I I just thought that was really neat. And it's a fun spin on traveling to different places to really step back and, and get a sense of that history. So I, I know you love it. I love it too. And I think I love it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So when you said hoe cakes, I mean, it sounds like a, a really naughty nickname for somebody. <laughs> yeah. I, um, um, how do they taste? I mean, what does colonial food
1: taste like? Did you have a favorite among the dishes? No, I, well, I, the hoe cakes were named because they sometimes when they're out in the fields, they actually, they, they cook them like pancakes on a hot hoe that they put over a fire, an actual tool. Oh. You know, I got agricultural, to that tool, that's why they were named that originally. Huh. So I, I really liked the bread. <laughs> um, I tried it actually. Um, I was in Perth Amboy, and this this site there where you can visit, and it's kind of like a smaller Colonial Williamsburg in a way. And there's a lot of the original buildings that they've brought into this one area, and again, there are reenactors there, and there's a woman there who is growing vegetables and then also using what she grows to make different things using colonial recipes, different dishes. And and bread was one of them. And she let me try the bread that she made. And I thought it was really good. I mean, it's no preservatives whatsoever and all natural. And, you know, it's not sugary. It's It's something that I would have on as like with a sandwich or or just with butter. I had it just with butter when I was there and I was surprised at how good that bread was. (laughs) Interesting.
0: So you were in these places to to tape your next season, right? So how do you end up deciding what places to cover? Was there a theme this year uh, surrounding the American Revolution or was it more destination driven?
1: It's both because I'm trying to share some lesser known, give it untold stories of the American Revolution. So I did go into, a lot of people don't know they can go into their state archives. I was actually just in North Dakota and the state archives are attached to their Natural history and history museum there, the largest museum in the state uh, that's in Bismarck, and in New Jersey, it's in Trenton. And you, you, or I, or anyone can make an appointment or just go to the archives if you want specific research materials. You do need to make an appointment, but they have some really fascinating pieces of history in there, Mm -hmm. and the state archives in Trenton have a lot of important. Documents related to our nation's founding, and I thought that was really interesting to actually go in and see them and read them. And yeah. I, I wonder—I I, it really made me think about. I'm not—I'm not a big—I say I'm not a big political person in that I follow politics, but it's not something that I necessarily would always rant and rave about as far as getting heated about topics. But when you look at history, it does make you wonder who is reading these documents? Because so much of huh. what we know now or what we people fight for is based on these original documents. And there's stuff out there that I think people should go back and read again. There are letters attached to some of these documents that, you know, that that really important people from our past wrote. And they had something to say that was in the letters that were attached to these documents. So I thought it was really interesting to go and take a look at those. And then in South Carolina, I was able to interview... Uh, the chief of the Wassamasaw tribe of the Varnerton Indians that's a mm. lesser known tribe that's um out in outside of Charleston and i thought that it was interesting cuz their their history is a lot of times based on oral history passed down but they're making an effort to document what they did what their ancestors were doing during the American Revolution and that was really interesting to hear and it's not necessarily out there in print yet so I thought I'm trying to find some of those stories that people don't know and put, a, put faces on the American Revolution that more people could relate to because we we live in this country that is a melting pot. And I think it's important that we realize that, you know, so many people played a role in this history and it's not always the characters that you read about in the history books that are so prevalent.
0: Right. and And when you were talking about George Washington and you were talking about smallpox vaccinations, I mean, there was a whole what's the word, a revolt against doing COVID vaccinations. And people were citing the founding fathers that they never would have made people do this. Well, actually, George Washington did with his troops. He he insisted that they had smallpox vaccinations, if I'm remembering the history correctly. So uh, I think sometimes we it's important to go back and look at what actually happened rather than
1: what we think happened. And and when you go to these sites, it's it is a great way to put yourself in that mindset. And I I love that about travel is you get to go to these places. I was recently in Santa Fe, outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. I went to Ghost Ranch where Georgia O'Keeffe lived and painted many of her famous works. And I got to meet with a cowboy who grew up and his mom was friends with Georgia O'Keeffe and he used to go to her house and get smoothies. And hearing, <laughs> hearing, firsthand, wow. yeah, hearing firsthand from him about his the time that he spent with her really helped personalize her this this famous figure that again sometimes you look at a black and white photograph or you look at her artwork but you don't necessarily get a full picture of what her personality was like and i think that's important and i i really like uh trying to find those stories and and those people and places that either know a lot about the history or can share it in a firsthand way, that's, that's absolutely the best. And I think it's important to document that sure. put that out there so people can, and then they can know they can visit too. Yeah. Well, what's fascinating to me about that Georgia O'Keeffe story is
0: she was ahead of her time, not only in her art, but also in her culinary tastes, having smoothies. thats <laughs> thats That feels like that's pretty recent of a development that she knew back then because she, she's been dead for quite Quite a number of years now. I I wouldn't have thought the smoothie era uh, she would she would have been in.
1: And you know, (laughs) know anyways, I think that would be fun. Now that now that you just said that, I think wow, I should actually ask. His name's David Manzanares. I should ask him for if there's a recipe that he can dig up. Wouldn't that be yeah? Wouldn't that be that would be amazing? Yeah, definitely. So
0: beyond the American Revolution, where else is your upcoming season going to go? Did you go outside of the United States as well, or did you mostly uh, focus on U.S. destinations?
1: So I actually just returned from my second trip to South Korea, and I focused on food, and what food says about culture on this trip and went to Seoul and Busan, and also got to go to the temple where the Chefs Table Netflix show filmed with Jean Quan. And, and she's mm. a Buddhist nun who does vegan cooking and and grows a lot of her and uses fermentation for a lot of what she's she's using in her recipes. And that was really fascinating and a neat off-the-grid type. Rejuvenation experience, if, if you know, if you mm. will. And I really like South Korea. I think the food is so good. I love to eat it in in Kate, in Koreatown here in New York City. But oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. But getting to go over there and try a lot of different things, and and then look at what that food is saying about the places and the people and the history, I think is really interesting as well. And that's going to be coming out in the new season, along with Alabama and Louisiana and North Dakota and. A lot of di- South Carolina, a lot of diverse places that we were able to, to discover in a new way. Again, a lot of times through the people, but also through the food and the nature and this history. So give me a little bit of
0: behind the scenes. When you decide on a destination, do you have a fixer there who finds great people and places for you to interview? Or do you do the research? And then how long do you film for? And then how long does the editing take?
1: I feel like it takes a village.
0: <laughs> sure. I'm sure.
1: It does. We had a fixer in South Korea who, but we also, I actually worked through a network of, I knew one food blogger, uh, YouTuber guy that I had been friends with. And I actually have friends that live in Seoul as well. And then I know restaurant. I actually worked some through restaurant owners in New York City to to chat with people as well that have. Oh wow! Yeah, so we kind of we cast a wide net because we were really looking for places with longevity, foods that would say. So I covered a lot of convenience stores and rest stops on uh-huh. Because how great? Yeah, those are so different over there. It's fun. The food is really fun. It, I kind of think that it's like. Going to a U.S. Um, state fair, some of the food that's at these Korean rest huh. stops, and they have tornado fries. I mean, <laughs> what are tornado fries? It's these fries that are one long um, potato is is kind of twirled like a. Tw- I'm calling oh, like tornado yes. fries. They call it something else but it looks like it's you know like this little spiral of a of a potato fry that's on a stick and a lot of foods that i kind of felt like did have maybe a reference point with what we like to eat when we're maybe traveling or going to a new place or going to a festival or something here in the United States, and then uh, the rest stops, I don't know if you've been, but they also have really great healthy food options because they cook a lot of fresh stuff and udon noodles and types of things. Their ramen, which is ramyeon, not even it's not pronounced like the Japanese style, obviously, but just little things I learned as I traveled around that I thought were fascinating insights into into what people like to eat and how they spend their time yeah. and and what they like to I ha- when they're traveling so right i ha- i haven't been to
0: south korea i've been to japan where also the the convenience shops are are really really fascinating absolutely and you're right so much fresher and uh better food there than we get did you find that there was a language barrier? Did you have to have a translator with you or do you find people who speak English?
1: I so the fixer that we hired also served as our translator and I did use him in a number of instances. I did I do try to find people that speak English where possible, but it's not always the case that they will. So I also don't want to not go somewhere because the person doesn't speak English. So we definitely used our fixer. His name was Aram Bro and he also does broadcasting and radio over in <laughs> over in South huh. Korea. So he was the perfect person to help us and, and also serve on camera sometimes. So it, it really worked out.
0: Now I know that you're about to start a podcast. How will that differ from the TV show? What what's the podcast going to be like and where can people find it?
1: So the podcast is the Travels with Darley podcast, and I've been thinking about doing one for quite a while and you know, wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do with it at first, but it's an immersive travel experience, sort of like my shows. I am taking content I've filmed on location and experiences that I've done and really mixing in a lot of rich, a tapestry of audio. So you will feel like you're going on the adventure. I have a, an episode on whitewater rafting class five rapids in West Virginia, and I'm taking you down the river and you're hearing the guy yelling at us to paddle ahead, paddle ahead. (laughs) And and we, we go to restaurants in Alabama where you're going to hear, you know, the sizzling of the fried green tomatoes being cooked and really all this. I, I've, worked a lot on the sound on this because I want people to be brought to the location. So that's what the podcast is all about. It's, it's taking you to these places and I you know talk to the people when I'm there and, and I'm using that content that I did film on location to get the audio. So it's oh, very cool. Yeah. So it should take you to these places in a, in an immersive way. And if so, so
0: that will be, I'm assuming wherever podcasts can be found, right?
1: Yeah. It's out through iHeart and then it's on Spotify and Amazon and Audible and all those, all those great Podcast platforms that everybody wants to find their podcast on. Yeah. If you
0: if people want to see Travels with Darley, the TV show, I know it can be difficult on PBS because there's a different schedule depending on where you are in the country. Is there an easier way to find you maybe on a streaming platform or, or what can people do?
1: You can, yeah. And if you Google it, they're online with Ovation TV Journey. They're streaming with Amazon. They're on Amazon Prime. They're, on, they're Apple T, coming to Apple TV actually in this winter with the new season. And also uh, Roku and all the, the different apps that, you can get through your smart TV now.
0: Very cool. And before we go, you will
1: also be speaking for the mighty Smithsonian soon, right? Yes. I'm, I'm excited. This will kick off six episodes coming out in my new season called Revolutionary Road Trips, where we're going to these sites related to the American Revolution. And I'm going to host a live event January 18th and have a panel in Washington, DC that you can watch via live stream as well. We'll, we'll be taking you to these locations and and giving further insights on why you might want to take a deeper dive into these this history and and learn about the past.
0: I I just love it that you're you're doing that deep dive into the American Revolution because you're right as you said earlier, so many of the issues that we're still wrestling with today, those guys were wrestling with and it, it it's it, it's informative to see what they thought what solutions they came up with, what they kicked down the line, <laughs> you know, certain problems they knew existed in the United States, and they felt they couldn't deal with them, and so they kicked them down the line to future generations. Uh, but it's all such fascinating stuff, and 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 I want more Americans to know our history because it's it's important. So thank you for doing that work.
1: No, thank you, Pauline. Well, I'm excited about it because. I, I didn't think I was interested in history until a few years ago. If I huh. And I took a trip to France to cover World War I sites that were of interest to America for the centenary. And I really thought, wow, I need to learn more and I want to learn more. And going to the locations and talking to people who were so passionate about these different subjects, that's what changed my mind. And I think that people who think they aren't interested in history maybe just haven't been presented with history in a way that works for them. or that Yeah, you're it. so right. Yeah, it's gossip. That's what it is. It's the gossip of the ages and who doesn't love gossip? <laughs> and it is, it's all these things. It's food, it's fashion. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's what, what you're saying. It's the everyday life and things that happen to us today that happened to them then in a different yeah. way. So I think it's fascinating.
0: Yeah, me too. Well, on that happy note, Thank you so much, Darlie, for appearing on the Farmer Travel Show. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Pauline. I appreciate it, too. We are welcoming back Travel Show favorite. She is Andrea Sachs of the esteemed Washington Post. Hey, Andrea. Welcome Hi. back to the Travel Show. Great to be back, as always. So you wrote two very, very helpful articles recently, and we're going to hit on both of them. The first one was about skiing and about passes. Because in just the last decade, maybe less, it seems like every single ski resort in the world has become a member of one of four Passes, which which gives a conundrum to the skier which to join. And you you think that it is if you are a, a dedicated skier, you should get at least one pass per season, right? I really do.
2: I think it's so much of this what the industry is doing is bundling. And so the idea that, sure, you can go up on the day or the night before um, and get a ski pass for that day, it's so much more expensive to do it a la carte. And then you have these four ski passes, and you did make, mention very wisely that we now have conglomerations, and so two of them are owned by big corporations that own some of the really you know big, big names in North America and Europe. And so they just bundle them, so you buy one pass, and then you just have the freedom to kind of decide where you want to go, and you don't have to deal with going up to the front counter and buying a ticket or having it sold out, you get a lot more freedom. And if you ski a lot, the economics make sense.
0: Well, you said in the article, I think that if you do four days of skiing, that pays off the pass, usually. It really does. I mean, skiing these days, I just look quickly,
2: Veil is $299 for one day. Ooh. Oh my goodness. just outrageous, yep. And so these passes, depending on which one you get, it could be under $1,000. The ones, two of the smaller ones... They're just, you know, maybe like $400. So it's really
0: a good deal if you plan to ski even just a week out of the season. Huh. And as you said earlier, briefly, if the ski resort sells out, if they stop selling lift tickets, they will usually allow pass holders to go still, right? Correct. There are a couple like Telluride where you do have to reserve
2: in advance, but for the most part, your pass is hanging around your neck or it's in your phone. That's your ticket.
0: Now, there's the Epic Pass, there's the Indie Pass, there's the Mountain Pass, and there's one other that I'm blanking icon. on. Icon. Icon. Uh, yep. <laughs> Epic and Icon. Well, those are the two big ones, right? Correct. Yep. So, Epic
2: is the one that's associated with Vale Resorts. Mm -hmm. which is the abominable snowman of ski destinations. So there are 41 ski destinations that allow unlimited skiing. And then there are partner ones where there might be a couple more restrictions, but they still fall under that pass. Huh. And what about, so that was Epic? Yep. So Epic is 41 ski destinations, and then they have about 45 partners and so, Icon, like this,
0: you know. oh, go ahead. how does Icon compare? Who is Icon?
2: Um, Icon is Altera, so not as well-known a name, but they have 16 destinations, including Steamboat and Stratton, which are really well-known, obviously, sure. um, Mount Tremblant and Quebec. So they have some big names as well. They have, I guess, the crumbs that Epic doesn't have.
0: Now, I know a lot of people wait until they know how good a ski season it's going to be before they make plans to go skiing. But in terms of these passes, that's a bad idea, right? Absolutely. And that's part of the reason they
2: want to, the ski resorts want to lock in skiers and snowboarders. So the earlier you buy in the season being when there's, you know, warm outside and the, spring is here that's when you want to buy your pass because it's so much cheaper and as we get closer to ski season it gets incrementally more expensive and then they just stop selling them so around now it's probably second highest price and then come december it'll be the most expensive and then awesome. they'll just shut it down so
0: you can't buy a pass oh wow so if you if you wait too long you you could be left out in the cold you could. Uh,
2: nice and I like that nice in the
0: cold. <laughs> <laughs> the, the indie pass is what. So
2: the indie pass is well, the indie pass and mountain collective are different than the other two passes in that you get two free days and then your third day will be either twenty five percent off or fifty percent off, depending on the pass. Huh. So that one is more if you are not as hardcore skier or if you feel like you won't get a ton of vacation days. That one's a little more manageable. And those, the one of them is three ninety nine. One is six hundred and fifty dollars rather than close to $1,000 or more. And these are from for different ski slopes then. They are. And they're more, so they're, I think of it as almost like Sundance and Slamdance. Like these are the indies. Like these are the little guys. They're maybe locally run. They're the ones that you go on, you know, maybe your high school ski trip or huh. more family oriented, less overwhelming, usually less expensive, closer to, you know, like little ski towns and not so sure. big
0: of a corporation. And uh-huh. so they pride themselves on their little indie spirits. And the Indie Pass is also the same type of place, right? Correct.
2: Yep. So Mountain Collective and Indie Pass are kind of in the same category. And then Epic and Icon are
0: kind of the, the, the big guns. Very interesting. You also wrote recently about the etiquettes surrounding Mm. red-eye flights. And I loved how you framed this. You said, when you're on a red-eye flight, you're on a sleepover party with a whole (laughs) slew of strangers. And the same kind of rules have to apply, right? They do. They really do. And more so
2: because you're tightly, I mean, as you know, you're packed in tightly. We all have different sleep schedules. We all have snoring and all sorts of things and gurgling and different sleep attire. And,
0: for, and we just have to be in our best behavior. And so that best behavior kind of follows what you need to have good sleep conditions. So one of your rules is all around the light in the cabin. So talk about what people need to know about about lighting up the cabin.
2: Absolutely. As you know, when you get on a red eye, and typically maybe they'll have some quick you know, beverage or food service, and then the flight attendants lights out. You know, they dim the lights. And so good etiquette is if you can't sleep, obviously, if you're watching the entertainment system, there's a dimmer on it. So dim your screen. If you're on your phone, dim your screen light. If you're using an overhead light, it's supposed to target just you and your seat. So if you have an empty row, you know, t- don't turn on the lights because it's <laughs> going to be like... going to be like concert lighting. So just be really respectful that light travels. And so try and keep it as pinpoint and focused as possible. And everyone understands that we all have different sleep schedules. And so if you need to
0: watch something to help you sleep, that's okay. Just keep it dim, keep it quiet. Right. Well, light travels, sound travels too. Mm -hmm. So what are the rules around sound?
2: Well, as you know, even with headphones, you can sometimes the cheap ones you can hear little tinny sounds. and so just make sure that either your volume's down or you have good headphones that keep the ear the sound in your ear. But one of my experts, which I didn't even think of was warning about earbuds because if you fall asleep, it could pop out of your ear and then you might hear the sound still, kind of that tinny sound at your feet, or you might have to like scoot around other people's feet and bags to look for it. So if you can have more secure headphones on, if you think you're going to fall asleep, you should try those.
0: Yeah. And you also talked about what I think is uh, uh, the grand prize of red-eye flights, when you spot an empty row. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) To me, because I'm always in economy, uh, you know, that's a bingo moment. But you can't just move to that row, can you?
2: You can't. And I'm the same. I immediately start scouring and looking at it. And then you look at other people looking at it. And it's a, it's definitely a competitive sport. Yeah. But you mainly, you need to not jump on it. You should obviously... Do not do this during boarding. Don't do it during takeoff. Once the flight is kind of at a safe cruising altitude, you can ask the flight attendant if it's okay to move to that row. I know so many people will not do this. And I don't even know (laughs) if I myself would do this to be that polite, but it's important. And also if you're going to, you know, if you have a row four and it would be nice if someone sits at the other side and then two of you can share a row of four, you know, it's kind of be considerate of other people that were all squished in there. And maybe you don't need like the full row, but if you each can divide it in half it would be kind of a nice gesture, but also right. be careful the back rows. Sometimes they reserve those for emergencies. And so if you see a back row, don't immediately stretch out, ask the flight attendant because sometimes they reserve those as emergency jump seats and during turbulence, huh. or if someone's ill and they'll, and they'll, you know, so they can stretch out and have some privacy. They'll
0: put them in the back row by the galley. And a lot of your article had to do with feet. No. <laughs> what do people do with their Ugh. feet that annoys the heck out of other pe- uh, passengers? Oh, showing your toes.
2: Bare feet is no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Although I was having a conversation with someone, they said, you know, your feet are probably cleaner than your hands. But huh. there's something about toes and calluses and bunions and bad pedicures just we don't want feet in our personal space so obviously feet swell it's important to either wear slip-ons or roomy shoes or just wear socks you know it's okay to take your shoes off and wear fuzzy socks one of my experts will take the slippers from hotels you know, that'll uh-huh.
0: purchase wear those and then just dispose of them at the end of the trip Huh. Yeah. And you also talk about the fact that it, unless you still believe in the Little Mermaid yeah. uh, and you're wearing your Little Mermaid PJs because you're six, you really shouldn't be wearing PJs. Do people no. actually do that? I've seen flannel bottoms. I, <laughs> I do get a lot of good
2: advice from other people who say, oh, I've tried this, especially with red eyes in terms of sleepwear, or I learned so much about getting ready for bed in the in the lavatory. I mean, I didn't even think to brush my teeth in the airport yeah, Which is a good idea because because you don't
0: uh, want to hog the lavatory exactly. And people Uh-oh. do on red eyes, absolutely in the morning when they're getting ready to to get off the plane. I've had you know I've waited twenty minutes sometimes to get into the lavatory because somebody oh, has to no, do their full makeup in there. Yeah, I was going to say their full makeup. You know, when someone has a full makeup bag, you're not
2: going to. That bathroom's not going to be open for 20 minutes.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, both great articles. Thank you so much, Andrea, for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show.
2: Always love being on it.
0: And thank you all for listening. That's it for this week's show. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage.